episode 141, Popsicle. I'm assistant curator Merle Riedel, and you're listening to a September 7th, 2011 podcast from the Kansas Historical Society. In this podcast, museum staff reveal the story behind the story about artifacts featured on our website, kshs.org. Nothing says summer like ice cream. Just ask the Scott brothers of Topeka, Kansas. In the 1870s, they built an ice cream empire that lasted for more than a century. Join curator Laurel French and me as we examine signs and tools used by the Scott Brothers Ice Cream Company. Established before refrigeration, these small-time entrepreneurs used frozen river water to chill their product. Find out about ice cream production before it was cool. Then, we go behind the scenes with museum intern Ashley Sherritt to find out about researching Civil War artifacts. Whether seen in a museum or stored in the attic, Civil War material can be difficult to research. Learn about the process this intern used to research some rarely seen items. Finally, in Six Degrees of William Allen White, we connect White a small-town newspaper editor from Emporia, Kansas, to Microsoft, the most dominant technology company of the early 21st century. Did White use an early version of the Windows operating system called Windows BC? Find out when we play Six Degrees of William Allen White. But first, Popsicle. Aftertaste stole my mind Left me dangling down defenseless Good morning, Laurel. Good morning. Today we are discussing several um, several items used by the Scott Brothers Ice Cream Company of Topeka, Kansas. And the items include a variety of advertising signs, uh, an ice cream cap, an ice cream container cap, and some fudge sticks. Mm-hmm. Um, does that sound about right? Yeah. The Scott brothers specialized in frozen treats. That was kind of their gig. Mm-hmm. Um, and frozen treats have been around since, like, the Persian Empire. Mm-hmm. Um, but when did ice cream kind of rise to preeminence in the U.S.? Well, ice cream has always been popular. I mean, basically, as soon as the Europeans landed, they started making ice cream. Because ice cream is fantastic. Why wouldn't you, right? Mm-hmm. Um But it was really during the rise of factories in the United States, so somewhere around the 1800s, and also technological improvements in refrigeration, so the ability to keep things colder for longer, that really helped ice cream become mass-produced and also then more affordable. So it was really about by, I'd say, the turn of the century, around the 1900s, that 
more people started enjoying ice cream and that it really just sort of exploded, so to mm-hmm. speak, on the U.S. Yeah. Exploding ice cream. Oh, exploding ice cream. It sounds fun. fantastic. So prior to the 1900, would, would your average person have known the phrase ice cream? Would that have been in the oh, vocabulary? Cer- certainly. Actually, uh, there were a number of early American cookbooks that contained a lot of ice cream recipes. Um, but really, due to refrigeration, it wasn't something that um, people would typically make and then sell. It was a sort of kind of thing where you'd probably make it in your own home Mm -hmm. um, using one of the old school hand crank kinds of things. So you were probably not going to order it through the Swans Man. That would be correct. That would be correct. Scott Brothers Ice Cream Company operated for over a hundred years. A pretty long time. Uh, How did they get their start? They got their start in about 1879 or so when Delana Scott asked her husband Harry to make some ice cream for a party that she was throwing. And when people came over and they tried his ice cream, they said, oh man, Harry, this is fantastic. He was struggling to make ends meet at the time as a carpenter, which is something we can all sort of sympathize with these days. Mm -hmm. Since so many people liked his ice creams, he thought, hey, you know, maybe I can make a go of this. So he decided to try selling it for a living. And he ended up going into partnership with one of his brothers, Will. And so then they opened up the Scott Brothers Ice Cream Company, and it was successful. When did it open again? It was about 1879 or so, maybe. 1880. So they were pretty they were pretty pioneering then in doing this ice cream thing. Right, right. Today refrigeration is key to ice cream production. Mm-hmm. You you kind of got to have it. How did the Scott brothers make ice cream and and more importantly how did they deliver it before commercial refrigeration? Like I can understand making it but to keep it around for a while long enough to deliver it to someone. Um, so how did they do that? Well, what they would do is the Scott brothers would go down to the river during the winter and they would cut out giant blocks of ice. And I mean, a lot of people people did this all the time. Right. Ice so, harvesting was, was fairly common. It, it, yeah, exactly. And um, so they would harvest these blocks of ice and they would store it in large, sort of like a warehouse kind of facility. A lot of times they would cover it with sawdust because that would help sort of insulate it. Um, So they would do that during the winter, and then throughout the summer months, they would just take out a block of ice and uh, use it as they needed it in order to make the ice cream. Um, So making ice cream requires um, some blocks of ice, and then typically salt is added to that because salt lowers the temperature of ice and makes it even colder yet. Mm -hmm. Um, And then within that, they would just use kind of your standard, basically your ice cream ingredients. in a tub within this really salty, cold ice in right. order to mix it up. So just to be clear, they weren't in, they weren't actually using river water in the ice that cream. That is correct. It, it was just used to keep the uh, the ice cream ingredients cold enough right. that it would actually right. freeze. That's, so that's acceptable that's because to actually use river water, that's a flavor I'm not familiar with. Yeah, river yeah. Water. I'm not sure I would want that either. So after they made this ice cream, it was a a bit of a challenge, especially on hot days, in order to deliver it. Or um, um, so they they would deliver ice cream door to door by packing it into tins, and then they would fill these giant wooden tubs with really super cold ice again by adding more salt to the ice Mm -hmm. to make it really cold. And they would just deliver it by wagon to different towns. but really, obviously, the best way to do it was just to go into their shop, mm-hmm. which was located in downtown Topeka. Mm-hmm. 
that kind of amazes me, the idea of delivering this, uh, the ice cream. And I think they delivered them to small towns around Topeka, like Silver Lake. And they're all within maybe 10 miles. Correct. But um, certainly the mere fact that you're dealing with ice cream would limit how much you can expand your company because you could really only transport it a certain range. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so – uh, on the topic of flavors, mm-hmm. do you have any idea? Like today, you know, the common flavors are vanilla, chocolate, chocolate chip. Mm-hmm. Are these the same flavors that the Scott brothers were working with? Yeah, they really were. Vanilla is kind of a standard. So yeah. they definitely it had. By nature, is very vanilla. Ex- exactly. So they had vanilla, they had chocolate, they had chocolate chip. Um, they also had some more unusual flavors, I guess you could call them more unusual. Um, things like butterscotch, black walnut, tutti frutti, and a very popular flavor in this area, which is brown bread, um, which uh, what? brown bread. Uh-huh. Hey, you know, I didn't make it up. Okay. <laughs> um, but um, in any case, that sounds like a Victorian version of cookie dough. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the Victorians came up with some pretty inventive flavors. Um, so, so the Scott brothers, they sold more than just ice cream, right? Yes, they did. What were some of the other products available? Well, really they sold almost any dairy product you can think of except for cheese. So they sold things like cream, and milk and butter. But they also sold other sorts of frozen treats as well. So you'd mentioned fudgesicles, which they sold, and popsicles as well. So those weren't made on site by the Scott brothers, but hey, you know, it's an ice cream parlor. Um, It makes sense to sell other frozen treats there. Sure. So they primarily did that later in the 1930s and 40s. Right. So by the 1930s and 40s, I mean, they've started to implement full refrigeration. Correct. And they also have, they have like, subcontracts, so they're delivering other stuff. I think, in, in fact, one of, the, one of the signs advertises Popsicle, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. And Popsicle is, I mean, it's a ubiquitous term now. It's like, a, like Kleenex or mm-hmm. Xerox. But, um, I mean, that's a brand name, right? Correct. So the Scott brothers were selling popsicles? Yes, yes, that's right. And um, the particular sign that we have in our collection has uh, their popsicles first sort of mascot, which I love the name. His name is Popsicle Pete, uh, which is just fantastic because um, if you're able to ever see a picture of Popsicle Pete, um, he's got, like, this bright red hair and kind Uh of big freckles and stuff like that. And he... Kind of looks like a popsicle, Pete. Yeah. He's holding kind of an orange popsicle and everything. So, one of the signs uh, that you were talking about it features popsicle Pete, mm-hmm. which is sort of a uh, I don't know. He looks a little lithium induced. Um, yeah. got a big old smile, <laughs> big eyes, and he is holding a popsicle. Mm-hmm. And he's holding a popsicle, which is a frozen dessert on a stick. So my next question relates to this idea of on-a-stick technology. Mm-hmm. Uh, besides ice cream and fudge, can you name a couple items to me that you think are best enjoyed at the end of a stick? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> yeah. I, I think it's interesting that, 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 that we decided to put ice cream on a stick. Right, right. And, you know, it melts, so it can get kind of drippy, so to speak. Or I hate it when you eat one side of it and the other side, like, falls off on the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, you're, you're right. It is kind of an unusual food to put on it's a stick. It's kind of messy. It is kind of messy. But there's a lot of stuff that goes at there the end are, of a stick. Uh, there are. Um, you know, I'd say one of the more successful ones are certainly lollipops. I mean, that's a nice hard candy. So sure. if, you, if you eat one side, you're, you're pretty good. And you can stick it in your mouth and suck on it for a while. And then mm-hmm. it works. Um 
Well, I always love caramel apples, and I think that they're pretty successful. Do you honestly. feel that that works, that an I, L- I, apple works well I, on the end of a stick? I, I feel like at least it stays on there <laughs> I, dis- than most. I disagree. I think Disagrees. it kind of becomes a, a sticky mess. Okay, okay. And partially falls off when you're trying to eat, yeah, but, you know, you're right. Yeah, I understand. Um, okay, well, then... I'm a big chocolate lover, so how about fruits and things like that for dipping into chocolate fondue? Oh, like a fun, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's good. That, that's good. That's a good one. That I one like works. That. Well, I tell you, my I like I like a good corn dog. Oh man, that's on the end of a stick. But I really feel um, the Middle East with their shish kebabs have refined the on a stick oh, technology. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'd, I'd have to agree with you there. They got it going on. Yeah. All right. Well, Laurel, thanks for telling us about the Scott Brothers Ice Cream Company. Well, it has been my pleasure. Today's Kansas quiz question is, in the late 1950s, Kansan Omar Nedek owned a Dairy Queen. Unfortunately, his store lacked a soda fountain, but he resourcefully sold bottles of frozen soda. Omer found that people loved his frozen sodas, so he was encouraged to build the very first icing machine. So, what town was Omar's Dairy Queen located in and is subsequently the birthplace of the Icy? Was it A. Coffeeville, B. Clearwater, or C. Mapleton? I'll be back in a second with the answer. Two thousand eleven marks the sesquicentennial celebration of the American Civil War. With that, interest in Civil War memorabilia is on the rise, and people continue to discover Civil War items. Today, we talk to museum intern Ashley Sherritt. Having recently cataloged several items used in the war between the states, Ashley tells us what she found out and provides tips for identifying and researching your Civil War stuff. Ashley, as an intern project, you recently cataloged several Civil War items. What exactly does it mean to catalog something, and what type of stuff were you working with? Was it all military stuff? I mean, when you think of Civil War, you think of military. Well, cataloging refers to collecting information about an object and adding it, in this case, to the museum's database. So this includes descriptions, measurements, conditions, dates, and all the provenance that goes with the object. Provenance being the story associated with it. Yeah, exactly. Um, And so I was working with a huge range of objects, from I had a bayonet, canteens, a saddlebag, sabers, canes, all items that were either around the Civil War time period or actually used in the Civil War. And it wasn't all military equipment. The cane, for example, was given to a man after the Civil War, uh, Guilford Gage, in recognition of his creating a memorial to soldiers who died in the Battle of the Blue. Um, I also cataloged a number of coopering equipment um, tools, which coopering is barrel making. Mm -hmm. And those were all Civil War era, but not actually used in the Civil War. 
And there were also, I had two pins um, from a Christian... uh, Like a Christian organization? Yeah, it was like a Christian organization that would help out soldiers and like give out um, pamphlets on the Bible and give sermons and help out um, with hospital equipment. And so it wasn't... These pins didn't have a whole lot to do with the military, but it was still part of the Civil War. Right. Do you have a lot of experience with researching Civil War items? I, I mean, you were working, you had to catalog several items here. How much how much knowledge were you walking into that situation with? So I had done a lot of cataloging in the past and a lot of research. I'm a graduate student in the Museum Studies program at KU, and I've had prior internships in museums. So I've done cataloging, but none of that involved Civil War items specifically. Mm-hmm. So this was new for me, and I had never cataloged something as far back as the 1860s. So it was also... It was fun to go back and see what research I could find that far. Mm-hmm. When researching this type of material, uh, how does one begin the process? Like if, I, if you have something at home and, and you speculate from a family member it was involved in the Civil War, um, what do you do to kind of start validating that? So what you should do is I got any information that I could find on names or places, um, information that's written on an artifact or a note that goes with it or something inscribed in it. And from there is your jumping off point. So you can research the places and the names and uh, see how much information that you can find. I use the Internet a lot um, and books and any local histories and finding uh, oral histories from family members is an excellent way to go about it. Mm -hmm. What were some useful online resources for Civil War cataloging? You talked a little bit about how you used the internet. What were some of the sources that you used? I used Ancestry.com and Civil War research databases a lot to confirm information about the people who used the objects, the regiments that they were in, and some of the battles that they were in. So that allowed me to confirm dates, and from Ancestry information with, like, birth and death dates, I could go from there to newspapers to try and find obituaries on people and find out about their lives. And I also used uh, Google and Google Books a lot. For you can't this. beat Google. You can't beat Google <laughs> um, to find out about the objects themselves. So like the bayonet or canteens, I found out a lot of information just about how bayonets were made and how they were used. So you can research the artifact, mm-hmm. just the objects itself without the people who owned it as well. Research doesn't always tell you exactly what you want to hear. Um, Did you find that some objects were not actually used during the Civil War? I mean, we talk about that basic claim. Did you find that sometimes that claim was wrong or fictional? Um, I guess for most of the objects that I had, the uh, stories that were given when the donor gave the object seemed like they could mostly be true. Um, the coopering equipment was just Civil War era. It wasn't actually used in the Civil War. Um, I did have a printout on a satin sheet of the Lord's Prayer, mm-hmm. and it was a different ver. It was like a poem that a soldier had written a different form of the Lord's Prayer, and that had about four different stories 
one from the Revolutionary War, one from the Civil War. So mm -hmm. that had four different claims about who actually wrote that poem. Mm -hmm. So that was really interesting, and I just included all the information of all the different stories because I don't know if you could ever actually pinpoint when mm -hmm. it was written. Of the items you researched, what were some of your favorites and why? Because there's always great stories attached to these artifacts. I mean, someone cherished them enough for a specific reason to, to donate them. So what, what were some of the really cool stuff you came across? Well, I always loved finding additional information about objects and the people that used them because they brings it out more real to me. It actually shows me that it really was used in the Civil War. So one of my favorites was a canteen, and uh, the donor said that um, a... John Collins took it from a Confederate soldier during the Battle of Laurel Creek in West Virginia, and it had the initials SAA carved into it. Mm -hmm. And so I was really curious and really wanted to find out who SAA was. So I was able to do research on the soldiers who fought in West Virginia um, at the Battle of Laurel Creek and prisoners of war, and I narrowed it down to two names, Sylvester Adkins and Smith Asbury. And so... So these were the Confederates that originally, Confederates originally owned it? That may have originally owned this artifact. So that and was you, really And you narrowed fun. down this to two people? To two possible people, and I couldn't get the exact one. But I'm pretty sure that one of those men owned this canteen. So that was That's a lot That's pretty of fun. good. All right. Uh, well, uh, thanks for telling us about uh, Civil War cataloging and uh, giving us some tips on how to do it. Laurel, and I'm back with today's answer for the Kanza quiz. So, the question was, Kanza and Omar Nedek owned a Dairy Queen in what town in which he invented the very first Icy? Was it Coffeeville, Clearwater, or Mapleton? Well, the answer is Coffeeville. He invented the Icy in Coffeeville, Kansas in the early 1950s. And now it's time for another round of Six Degrees of William Allen White. Joining me today is Registrar Nikayla Zimmerman. Hello. And Assistant Museum Director Rebecca Martin. Hi. Today we connect William Allen White, a small town newspaper editor from Emporia, Kansas, to Microsoft, a powerful technology company in the early 21st century. Rebecca, you want to give us a little background on, the, uh, on Microsoft? Sure. Headquartered in Redmond, Washington, computer programmers Bill Gates and Paul Allen established Microsoft in 1975. She's way back in 1975. Yeah, you guys weren't born yet. Mm -mm. No. <laughs> I won't say when I was born. <laughs> Through an innovative use of programming code, the company achieved soaring success in the 1990s. Though still competitive today, Microsoft once ruthlessly dominated the technology sector. With their Windows operating systems, Microsoft essentially defined how humans would interact with machines for the next century. 
Before Windows, dialog boxes were rare, and most people stared at a green screen. Can you imagine the world before Windows? I mean, <laughs> and it's it's amazing how much like the Windows idea, Windows concept pops up in everywhere. Like defense machinery uses Windows-based technology. You expect it everywhere. Yeah, I don't know if I could use anything else. (laughs) I don't know either. But where Microsoft really revolutionized the market was with licensing. If you liked Windows, which everyone did, then you were stuck with Microsoft for everything. Updates, spreadsheets, print drivers, and so on. Once maligned as a technology monopolist, today Gates and his foundation are widely viewed as one of the most powerful humanitarian endeavors on the planet. He did a pretty good, uh, pretty good change of identity there. You know, I mean, at one time he was kind of uh, viewed as a, a super, a, like an uber villain. You know, and and now he is the quintessential philanthropist. Mm-hmm. All right, and as is the case with over history, many um, many robber barons, right? Mellon and Carnegie. Carnegie. If you have enough money, you can re-engineer your legacy. You can. <laughs> All right, thanks, Rebecca. Now to the game. As a contestant, Rebecca, you will hear two chains of connection between William Allen White and Microsoft. You must pick the true six degrees of William Allen White from the false. Uh, Nikayla, you want to go first? Okay, well, as Rebecca told us, Microsoft was founded by Bill Gates and Paul Allen in 1975. And the massive- Who is Paul Allen? <laughs> He's a rich man. Yeah. Okay, so. He was like, I am out of here. I don't want to be part of this. The massive amount of money that Gates amassed through the success of Microsoft allowed him to create the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, a philanthropic organization founded in 2000. So he waited a good long time before he founded that Mm -hmm. philanthropic Mm -hmm. organization. Uh, One of the most substantial gifts to the foundation came from Warren Buffett, the well-known business magnate from Omaha and CEO of Berkshire Hathaway. Kind of a local boy, maybe. Yeah, mm-hmm. he pledged 10 million Class B shares of Berkshire Hathaway stock to the company, which has amounted to about $10 million so far, I think. Yeah. Um, Buffett was the son of U.S. Representative Howard Buffett, who also served as the campaign manager for Robert Taft when he ran for president in 1952. Robert Taft was the son of U.S. President William Howard Taft, and as we know, William Howard Taft spent a day with William Allen White while canvassing the country running for president, and White also visited Taft at the White House to make the case for the progressives after Taft went with the conservatives. Nice. Very good. And I believe you've come up with a mnemonic device for remembering (laughs) this this chain of connection. I do. It's the Buffett, Buffett, Taft, Taft, William Allen White connection. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like like an Ivy League cheer. (laughs) (laughs) That's pretty good. Uh, All right. Now I'll do mine. Well, Microsoft was founded by Bill Gates. In 2005, Queen Elizabeth II made Gates an honorary knight of the British realm. Among the others in this prestigious clan of knights are Sir Elton John, James Duty, James Dame Judy Dench. <laughs> However, White's childhood friend and fellow Kansan Frederick Funston was also a member of this honorable order. Eventually, highly regarded a highly regarded army officer that led adventurous exploits in exotic countries. Funston won his knighthood prior to his military career. While leading a science expedition through Alaska in 1892, Funston actually set a record for most consecutive days on the Alaskan frontier, and it was this achievement that led to his knighthood by the Queen. And as we know, Funston was very good friends with William Allen White. 
So, Rebecca? Um, I cheated. Uh, when you dropped the hint <laughs> that Funston was knighted by the Queen, I Googled it. I'm like, come well, on. Well, you can't do that. <laughs> if you're going to drop hints, I can. Plus, actually, you know, I knew that uh, uh, Buffett and Gates are bridge-playing buddies, so yeah. I would have gone with Michaela when I, once I heard hers. Right. But she didn't drop any hints. No. Yeah. So. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I guess mine would have been like, would have been like, like yours was... Buffett, Buffett, Buffett Gate, Gates, William Ellen White. Mm-hmm. Taft, Taft. Taft, Taft, William. Mine would have been <laughs> like Gates, Queen Elizabeth, Frederick Funston. It doesn't, it doesn't have the same. No. There's no ka-ching to it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Nikayla, would you like to issue the challenge for the next episode? Absolutely. For our next episode, we attempt to connect William Allen White to Benedict Arnold. During the Revolutionary War, Arnold displayed skill at leading American rebels to battle against the British. However, his name became synonymous with treason when he switched sides and fought against America. So come back in two weeks when we connect William Allen White to Benedict Arnold. Like Benedict Arnold, did White's name once become synonymous with a dastardly deed? For example, <laughs> if I ate the last powdered donut, did I pull a William Allen White? <laughs> yes, you did. <laughs> Find out when we play Six Degrees of William Allen White. You're my That concludes episode 141, Popsicle. If you would like to see images of the artifacts used at the Scotts Brothers Ice Cream Company, or check out the museum's fascinating Civil War collection, just go to kansasmemory.org, our online digital repository. If you would like to impact what we talk about on this podcast, Find Kansas Historical Society on Facebook and leave comments on our wall. Or send me an email at podcasts at kshs.org. That's podcasts with an S. Come back in two weeks when collection specialist Donna Ray Pearson discusses two album covers for The Wiz, a Broadway production and film from the 1970s. Essentially, an African-American adaptation of L. Frank Baum's The Wonderful Wizard of Oz, The Wiz showed viewers that even Disco Dorothy just wanted to go back to Kansas. This podcast is a production of the Kansas Historical Society. Real people, real stories. My